Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, A Telepathic Wooing by James Buckham. First published in The Black Cat, February 1896. Uh, He was born in Vermont. (laughs) Uh, He had one pseudonym that we know of, uh, Paul Pastnor. Um, And a few stories, like a handful of stories. One of them I want to read is called A Surgical Love Cure. (laughs) 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 Maybe he read this story to himself and says, Oh, I got it bad. (laughs) I can solve this problem. Um, Would you read this very brief story to us and then we can discuss what its greater meaning is? Sure. I do think we should put it in time. It's uh, appeared in The Black Cat Mm -hmm. in 1896, February 1896. A telepathic wooing. Dr. Amsden was utterly and hopelessly in love with beautiful Miriam Foote. But in spite of his six feet of splendid manhood, or perhaps because of them, the young doctor was so timid in the presence of the fair sex, and particularly in the presence of the fascinating Miriam, that he could no more bring himself to utter a syllable of sentiment to that young woman than he could walk up to the venerable and dignified president of the State Medical Association and tweak his nose. The two things seemed equally preposterous and impossible. At this juncture of affairs, curiously enough, there fell into the hands of Dr. Amston a book that offered a magical solution of the problem that perplexed him, viz. how to make love to the woman who had ensnared his heart without being conscious of doing it. This book was called The Law of Psychic Phenomena. And its central theory was that the subjective mind or soul of any person by a process of autosuggestion may enter into communication with the subjective mind of another person at any distance whatsoever. A condition of sleep, either cataleptic or natural, is induced by the agent in himself, but previously to falling to sleep, he must concentrate his whole mental energy and willpower into the determination to convey a certain image or message or both to the subjective mind of the person with whom he wishes to communicate. Then away goes his spirit, his phantasm, while he is buried in unconscious slumber, appears in his very image to the person designated and delivers the message with his very voice and manner. Truly a marvelous theory and of untold significance to timid lovers and bashful solicitors of every kind. According to this theory, Dr. Amsden, in order to make telepathic love to Miriam Foote, needs simply drop to sleep on a certain night with a strong determination to send his phantasm to the young woman with an eloquent plea of affection. That was all. It was not even necessary for him to furnish the general substance, introduction, or any portion of this glowing address. He needs simply specify that it should be passionate and rich in verbal color, ordering a proposal much as he would order dinner at a first-class hotel with perfect confidence that at the proper time it would be served in proper form. 
To be sure, this method of wooing was not in strict accordance with the traditional etiquette of such affairs. It might even be considered that this proposal by a sort of phantasmal proxy was hardly fair to the object of the experiment. A ghost is, after all, but a ghost, whether it be attached to a bodily tenement or be simply a spirit at large. And even the most heavenly-minded young woman might cherish a prejudice in favor of a fleshly lover. On the other hand, however, the choice lay not between the two methods of wooing, but between this and none at all. And how easy, how delightful a method of making a proposal of marriage. It could all be performed like a painful surgical operation during merciful sleep. Then the lover, when next he met the lady in his everyday person, would know by her manner whether she had accepted or rejected him. The more Dr. Amston considered this fascinating project, the more trivial seemed his scruples against its fulfillment. Indeed, he asked himself judicially, was it not a fundamental doctrine of metaphysics that only the soul was real and so-called matter was simply the shadow cast by the spirit? This being the case, his vulgarly named ghost was in reality no ghost at all, while his bodily presence was the mere phantasm. Having arrived at this comfortable, though to the lay mind slightly abstruse conclusion, Amston wavered no longer. I will do it, he said, jumping to his feet. I will do it tonight, or no, a few days must be given to subduing the flesh and concentrating the energies of the subjective mind. On Saturday evening, at the time of my regular weekly call, I will make an end to this painful uncertainty. Though I cannot but hope that she looks upon my suit with favor, I shall never dare to broach the subject of my love openly in the flesh. My ghost, or at least what is vulgarly known as a ghost, shall speak, and I will abide by the result. On his return from dinner that evening, Dr. Amsden locked all the doors and darkened all the windows of his apartments. Then, after smoking a meditative cigar, he went to bed. It was barely eight o'clock in the evening when his head touched the pillow, but as he had planned to send his image to Miss Foote at precisely nine o'clock before that young lady should have retired to her chamber, he wished to have ample time to get himself to sleep. Besides, he was really tired and drowsy, which was certainly a favorable condition for his experiment. He had feared that he would be excited and nervous, but already the suggestion of sleep, which he had been constantly reiterating for the past hour, was beginning to tell upon his brain. The formula, I am about to go to sleep, I am becoming sleepy, I sleep, was having a most magical effect. Dr. Amston dropped into the misty chasm of slumber in less than 15 minutes after getting to bed. But that 15 minutes had been spent in strenuous command on the part of the objective mind that the subjective mind should go at precisely nine o'clock to the home of Miss Foote, present itself in the exact and correct image of the lover and make an ardent appeal to the affections of the lady. In about two hours, Amston awoke, bathed in perspiration and feeling thoroughly exhausted. He was not conscious of having dreamed at all, and yet it seemed to him as if he had just shaken off a most horrible nightmare. He arose, lit the gas, and consulted his watch. It was just 10 o'clock. Thank heaven.
heaven, he cried, I did not wake before the time. He went back to bed and fell instantly into the deep slumber of complete exhaustion from which he did not wake until late the next morning. For two days, he did not see Miss Foote. Then he summoned up courage to call upon her. She came downstairs looking pale and anxious. The moment that Amsden's eyes fell upon her, his heart began to throb with suffocating violence. Undoubtedly, his experiment had succeeded as far as the proposal was concerned, but should his attitude be that of the accepted or rejected lover? Hardly noticing his stammering expressions of solicitude for her altered looks, Miriam led the way into the drawing room and, motioning him to a chair, seated herself in a dim corner at the other side of the room. Then, with her blue eyes lowered and her fingers twisting nervously, she said, Dr. Amston, I owe you an apology. When you called two nights ago and asked me to be your wife, I was too much agitated to answer you to tell you the truth, she continued, reddening a little. The eloquence of your words, their poetry and melody so surprised and overcame me that I could not answer as you deserved. When I left you and walked to the other side of the room, it was only that I might gain possession of myself. And when I looked up and found you gone, gone, exclaimed Amsden, groaning audibly. Yes, gone like a spirit. Here Miss Foote paused while Amsden clutched at his chair, feeling as though his whole body were turning to sand and dribbling down upon the floor. Without a word of goodbye, I feared that I had mortally offended you and that you would never come back to. Then you were not angry because of my ghost, because I left like <laughs> a ghost? You wanted me to come back? But why? I, I think you ought to know, said the girl, blushing. And the next moment, Dr. Amston was kneeling her to her feet. I did it in a dream. No, I, I don't mean that. I mean, this is a dream. I ought to explain. No, don't try. I understand, said Miriam softly. The girl's head sank forward on his shoulder. She was crying a little, but she suffered her lover's arm to slip round her waist. And into his trembling hand, she pressed her own. It was done, the impossible, the inconceivable, and even Amsden felt in his heaving heart that he had never done anything so easy and so utterly delightful in his whole life. It was true that Miriam did not understand, but Amsden felt that at such a juncture any explanations would be not merely out of place, but even indelicate. To his credit, be it said, however, that on one occasion before his marriage, he attempted to confess to Miriam all the circumstances of his proposal, but while he was still struggling with his introduction, she stopped him with a peremptory gesture. I do not understand a word about subjective and objective minds, she said in a wounded voice. All I know is that you made me the most beautiful proposal I had ever heard, I mean imagined, but, of course, if you want to take it back by saying that you were not responsible at the time, whereupon Amston was obliged to consume two delightful hours in assuring his sweetheart that he was a blundering fool, that his metaphysical nonsense translated meant that it was his best self that had made that eloquent proposal, and that he was only afraid his everyday self was not one-tenth good enough for her. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm sold by astral projection generally. I, I think it's I think it's <laughs> hilarious and funny. 
and also yeah <laughs> kind of interesting how people you use it to get the things they they we we say oh we get rockets and we go places here he just wants to go over to the lady's house and ask her you know <laughs> hey, will you marry right. me <laughs> um instead um he he buys a book <laughs> that's the law of psychic the law of psychic uh what is it projection or uh what's it called the law, the of, law psychic of psychic phenomena, phenomena. right and then uh, he reads it very most carefully. He's a doctor, you know. Uh, right. <laughs> practices up, uh, does the act, uh, doesn't know if he did the act and thinks he hadn't, and then turns out he had it. Worked great. Um, this is like uh, one of those in the contemporary magazines. Uh, there would be like sort of patent medicine sort of stuff, and there would be these testimonials, like quite long page testimonials about how great this this wonder drug work for the person um this is a story that's kind of like that but it's also it's it's a comedy um and it's so funny i i was thinking when you're reading it um that line uh, <laughs> where he he says um here miss foot paused while amston clutched at his chair feeling as though his whole body were turning to sand and dribbling down upon the floor i was like this is this is a cartoon. <laughs> you can see like his stress and his worry and his perspiration and uh, and uh, she's hiding herself in the shadows and and he's he's melting. <laughs> um, it's it's like a cartoon. In fact, it would probably make a terrific cartoon with with uh, you know that uh, narration style. Just use the narration here. It, it, a wonderfully animated film. Oh, I, it's so funny, Eric. It is. So, please notice it's 1896. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that Buckham, um, maybe I'm wrong because he did have training as a physician as well as training as a theologian. Um, maybe Buckham had read Freud, but I don't think that he did. But whether he read Freud or not, Freud would just be chuckling uh, at this story. Look at how it begins. Dr. Amston was utterly and hopelessly in love with beautiful Miriam Foote. Mm-hmm. Now, Miriam, by the way, is the name of Moses and Aaron's older sister. So there is something too imposing about Miriam. You know, she is, and her name is Foote, F-O-O-T-E. Mm-hmm. The very next sentence, but in spite of his six feet of splendid manhood, mm-hmm. Holy mackerel. So she's one foot with a capital F, and he's six feet lower. Now, ostensibly, this means that he is six feet tall, Mm -hmm. which in 1896 is a pretty high, a pretty large height for a man. However, when she refer, when you refer to someone's splendid manhood, yes, even in 1896, we're talking about a guy who's got a six-foot-long, splendid manhood, Mm -hmm. almost long enough to reach to Miriam's, Miriam Foote's parlor. (laughs) And indeed, he he shows up, you know, in her parlor. She is so surprised at his expression of ardor that she goes all the way across the room. So, you know, you think about all of this. She is the fair sex. Uh, what does he compare the possibility of him unleashing his six feet of splendid manhood on her poor one foot? 
um, he thinks that it, he could no more bring himself to utter a syllable of sentiment to that young woman than he could walk up to the venerable and dignified president of the State Medical Association and tweak his nose. Right. Well, his nose, of course, is exactly a metonym for his manhood. Mm. I mean, this happens all the way you know, back to Chaucer uh, again and again. The tweaking of the nose is the same thing. He could not assault the the manhood of authority, and he could not assault Miriam's authority. But God, he's got this throbbing six feet of splendid manhood. So how does he prepare to deal with this psychically, his subjective psyche? He screws himself up, he concentrates as much as he can, and he sits down with a cigar. (laughs) I mean, seriously, Sigmund, did you write this story? But, and this is quite different than Freud, this isn't viewed as, in some sense, abnormal psychology. This is viewed as ethereal psychology. Mm -hmm. This is viewed as a way in which the, the, the objective soul the fleshly lover, as it says in this book, yep. uh, in this story, the fleshly lover can answer the calls of the flesh while still preserving the, the respect and honor and dignity that he would want to see in the object of his affections. And it's only when she invites him to come and get together across the room that she can put her head down on his shoulder and he can have the meeting that he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that he doesn't know what he's saying. Right? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know it. It's the most eloquent when, speech that he's ever uh, she's ever heard. He doesn't know what exactly. it Exactly. <laughs> but when we read what the narrator says, we know what he's speaking. She may think that it was beautiful and flowery. We know that it was, in fact, sexy and motivated by hormones. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful connection here. Um, And knowing that James Buckham himself went through a whole series of different trainings in his life and didn't actually manage to, to end up with anything except being a writer, observing other people's passions. Um, it's, it's really quite wonderful. I, I, I think that it's a delightful story, and it gives me faith in my subjective self. Uh, you know, I, I highlighted uh, that same phrase. Uh, I'm going to read that sentence again because it, it is super funny. A ghost is, after all, but a ghost. <laughs> Whether it be attached to a bodily tenement or be simply a spirit at large (laughs) even though most heavenly minded young women uh, 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 the most heavenly minded young woman might cherish a prejudice in favor of a a fleshy lover (laughs) a fleshly lover so uh, he's like uh, spiritually pure, spiritually pure, spiritually pure my body is leaving my body but he shows up in the flesh to her um, and says these eloquent words that are, you know, unspoken. Um, he returns, doesn't think it has worked, sees her, he can't tell if her face is yes or no or anything, um, and then, uh, oh, it's great, everything's wonderful, but um, the uh, neurosis almost that's going on, in, the neuroticism that's going on in here with his 
his inability to say one word to her in real life is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And and then there's this little phrase, uh, uh, set of sentences, that talks about the ethics of whether it's appropriate or not to leave your body and go over to your <laughs> sweetie's intended house and woo her there, which is the title, right? A telepathic wooing. And I want to read that because I just think it's it's very choice. Uh, the more Dr. Amston considered the fascinating subject uh, project, the more trivial seemed his scruples against its fulfillment. <laughs> Indeed, he asked himself judicially, was it not a fundamental doctrine of metaphysics that only the soul was real and so-called matter was simply the shadow cast by the spirit? This being the case, his vulgarly named ghost was in reality no ghost at all. Well, his bodily presence right. was the real phantasm. He's he's arguing himself even into he has to argue himself even to using this because uh, going up and talking to the girl that's impossible. I could no more do that than go tweak the nose of the person who could kick me out of my profession, right? So he has to talk himself into doing the telepathic wooing, which. You know, if you handed me this book and said, you know, this book really helped me, Jesse. <laughs> the Law of Psychic Phenomena. It teaches you how to get what you want through astral projection. I'd be like, okay, Eric, whatever. <laughs> but no, he's so sure. desperate. He he gets it, reads it very thoroughly, practices immensely, and then, oh, the ethics, I don't know if I should. <laughs> and then he but fulfills you know- it. I'm sorry. Please, I didn't. No, he fulfill. He fulfills. He, he he finally, as you say, screws himself up into doing it. You know, I uh, I am hardly unique in having um, had surgical operations done upon me, um, and I must say, um, having survived them, um, I am really glad that I was insensible while they were going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I know how long and painful was my recovery from my hip replacement. I can't imagine how I would have tolerated having my hip replaced, right? Anesthesia is really good. It could all be performed, the book explains to Dr. Amston, like a painful surgical operation during merciful sleep. Mm -hmm. There is, in fact, something to be said for wanting to be insensible for things that are simply too enormous to bear consciously. And while it's easy to laugh at this fellow, um, I can't help but think that there is something going on in the romantic period of literature, and this is uh, 1896. It is, um, it's, it's Victorian, uh, where sexuality is supposed to be hidden, but in fact, we see the nose and the cigar and the six feet of splendid manhood. Um, there is something in the Victorian period which is really, in some ways, a uh, hypertrophy of romanticism that says... If you, if you love a woman so much, you are actually, you're actually turning her into an object. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. You should be putting her on a pedestal. But if you want her that much, even if you want her in all of the appropriate forms, I want to marry her. I don't want to rape her. Right? I mean, 
if, if you want her that much, you can't help but recognize that you're seeing her as fleshly. And, and you shouldn't because in the Victorian period, we've sublimated those romantic desires and women are supposed to be these wonderful, beautiful, cherished things. But this guy, Amsden, he will, of the six feet of magnificent manhood, he knows damn well that he wants her a lot. <laughs> and he knows it. And he, but he, because he really loves her, he doesn't just want to have sex with her. He can't stand revealing how much he actually also wants her physically. So he needs a, a surgical operation to cut him off. Yep from his magnificent manhood and let this happen during merciful sleep. He is, she is the most heavenly minded young woman and might still want a fleshly lover, but he can't believe himself worthy of it. It's a very Victorian, very Victorian story. And it's really quite lovely because we have people, both of them, I mean, she doesn't accept his, his proposal at first, not because she doesn't want it, but because she's so floored by <laughs> how wonderful it is, right? We've got a couple of young, attractive, healthy, educated people in a society that doesn't allow them to say, hey, we really want to spend a whole lot of time entangled up with each other. But that's what they have to figure out a way to do. And the only way to do it is to drive a surgical knife between the objective and subjective self. And... That's what the guy does. It is laughable, but it's laughable, I think, in a a very sympathetic way. Loving, sympathetic, perfect word, right? We we're rooting for these these <laughs> yes. youngsters. We really want them to be able to get together, and if that's what it takes to do it, believing in astral projection, <laughs> by golly, astral projection may that's what it should be. It could have turned out um, a completely different way. She could have seen a ghost and been so frightened and ended up in an insane asylum. But it all worked out in the end. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a little bit interesting, given that this was published in The Black Cat, mm -hmm. which often does have stories in which things are violent, they turn bad, mm -hmm. um, they're jokes, but bitter jokes. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a magazine that covers a whole range of emotions, many of them dark. I but like, I this like... one... I like the aesthetic of the magazine, and I like the aesthetic of this story. Whoever was editing it was choosing interesting things and getting interesting writers to write interesting stories. About This is essentially a technology story, right? We now have the technology to do this amazing psychic projection. <laughs> it's like bullshit, you don't have that tech. But if we did... Indeed. And in that regard, it's like so many others. But, you know, it reminds me of a story Arthur Clarke wrote about a, um, a space, uh, you know, an, an astronaut going through the deeps of space. He's pioneering. And on his communications device, he hears uh, a connection. He hears somebody getting to him from a planet, a yet unexplored planet. And uh, he only hears her for a while. And he only hears her. And then... Uh, he can see her on this little two-inch by two-inch screen, and she, in fact, is beautiful. And in the long journey to get to the planet, they are wooing each other, and they are getting together. Talk about your astral projections, mm -hmm. right? We're out among the stars. And he gets there and gets out of his ship and discovers she's 18 feet tall. <laughs> 
right? So as you say, we could have this work out in exactly the wrong way. But Buckham has given us a very gentle gift to say, and by golly, it can work out perfectly. I love it. Um, I love it. Me too. Um, he didn't know what to say. That is Dr. Amston. He didn't know what to say. But he knew how to think about what saying would mean. And even though he didn't know how to do it, there was always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio.